Amen. Thank you, Scott and choir and band and Faye. Scott and Faye have a busy week coming up. Their daughter is getting married in Texas on Saturday, which is a big deal. Congratulations to you guys. Faye was saying it's, it's getting real, it's getting really real this, this week. So exciting times. Nathan Burbank and Sally's daughter are getting married soon as well. Two weeks. Goodness, Eliza, all kinds of matrimony. It's dark in here. The, the weather has, has been crazy. Jude and I tried to sneak out and, and play nine holes at, at like 7 p.m. It was kind of a Steve and Logan Newton type thing. At 7 o'clock after dinner last night, I said, let's, let's go to the golf course and try to get nine holes in. And, and that storm came in from the east, which is weird as it is. And then the sun was setting in the west, and it just looked amazing. And Jude said, I, I love storms. I really like them. I said, me too. He said, it's like God's flexing. It's like God's just flexing his muscles. <laughs> I was like, it is. It is like that. You can see that, that God's in control and that he's almighty and all powerful as the storm clouds gather. So pretty uh, amazing uh, moment of worship that we had on the golf course. And we're going to talk about worship today as well as we look at John at the end of chapter 11, the beginning of chapter 12. We're actually approaching, I know it's like we're in the middle of John right now. But we're actually moving towards the end of the ministry of Jesus. The last week of his life is coming up. And today we're going to begin the end of Jesus' ministry on earth. In our text for today, we're going to see the third and final Passover in the Gospel of John is, is coming up. And, you know, Passover is the most important of all the, the Jewish, there's four Jewish festivals for which the, the Jews from all over Judea would come up to Jerusalem and make that pilgrimage. And Passover was the most important because it celebrated God's greatest miracle of deliverance up until that point, which was bringing his people out of Egypt. Two million, most scholars think it's about two million Jews that were delivered out of Egypt and eventually after 40 years of wandering brought them into the promised land safely. So Jesus Ministry on earth was three years from the time he started his, his ministry. So there's three Passover accounts in the Gospel of John. And each one, something important happens. It's a monumental occasion each time a Passover occurs. The first Passover was when Jesus came into Jerusalem and cleansed the temple. He drove all those greedy money changers out and said, you've made my father's house into a house of trade. And he turned the tables over and cleansed the temple. Then the second Passover in chapter six, he was out in the wilderness in Galilee area and he, he fed the 5,000 with the, the boys' lunch of five loaves and two fish. Gave them the best Passover meal they've ever had in their lives with that miraculous occasion. And now we approach the third Passover so we know that something big is about to happen. We know that that, that something is going to occur in the life of Jesus. But I'm not sure that John's audience, the first audience that heard this letter read, that they could have predicted that at this third and final Passover, that Jesus himself would be offered as the sacrificial lamb at this Passover. We know that at this point, the perfect spotless substitution that causes God's judgment to pass over his people is about to be offered once and for all. 
So on his way to Jerusalem for the feast of Passover, Jesus once again stops at the town of Bethany to see his friends, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. And the, the whole village is, is having a dinner party for him and celebrating the resurrection of Lazarus, that he's been moved from death to life, literally. And we're going to see today how each one of these siblings, how Mary, Martha, and Lazarus each show us what a life of worship offered to Jesus looks like in three very different ways. So with all that in mind, let's stand, if you're able to, in honor of God's word as I read our text for today, John chapter 11, verses 47 through 57, and then we're going to get into chapter 12, the first 11 verses. Hear now the word of the Lord. So the chief priest and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, what are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, you know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. He did not say this of his own accord. But being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. And not for the nation only, but also to gather into one, the children of God who are scattered abroad. That's you and me. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. Jesus, therefore, no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there to the region near the wilderness to a town called Ephraim. And there he stayed with the disciples. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and many went up from the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. They were looking for Jesus and saying to one another as they stood in the temple, what do you think, that he will not come to the feast at all? Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should let them know so that they might arrest him. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at the table. Mary, therefore, took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he, who, who was about to betray him, said, why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put in it. Jesus said, leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. The poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. When the large crowd of Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came, not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may have a seat. You know, I, I read a lot about the current state of Christianity in our nation, in our state, in our city, and 
it can kind of be a, a depressing topic, right? If you look at the stats and the numbers, I've, I've read that every week in the United States, 200 churches close their doors for good. Every week, 200 churches in the U.S. close their doors for good. Churches can't seem to figure out how to revitalize, how to get people in their communities to be excited about what God's doing through Jesus Christ and about the good news, the gospel of Jesus. We can't figure out a way to, to get people back in church in this country. The good news is that globally, there's more Christians than there ever have been. There's more martyrs than there ever have been. There's more missionaries than there ever have been. God's kingdom is advancing still, but in, in Europe and North America, we know it's on the decline. So here in John chapter 11, after Jesus had just raised a man from death to life, you, you see the complete opposite problem that we have in this country was a problem for the Jewish authorities. Look at verse 47. The chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council with a capital C, it says in, in my Bible. That's the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin was a group of 71, not 70, not 72, but 71 rabbis who were the authorities over all of Judaism. They got to make the rules about the rules about the rules about what it meant to be a good Jew. And so they, they functioned like the Supreme Court of Israel. If there were these little courts in each town, they would eventually take their complaints up to the highest court, the Sanhedrin, and they were the final authority. And they, they said when they gathered, what are we to do? Verse 47, for this man performs many signs. And then I love verse 48. If we let him go on like this, as if they have a choice, if we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. Man, I wish we had that problem today. <laughs> Wouldn't it be great if the powers that be were so utterly concerned about the explosion of Christianity that it would force empires to reckon with Jesus Christ? The, the Jewish authorities in Jerusalem are worried here that their, their precious system of, of largely contrived authority, it's not real authority, they've got this system that they've established themselves as the rulers over all of Judea. They're in control of the money as well and the power. They're worried that if, if Christianity takes off, that, that Rome's going to get agitated with this massive uprising of Jews who have found the Mashiach, the Messiah, who has indeed come to rescue God's people and to bring them back to the Lord. And the authorities are worried if that happens, Rome's going to come and squash it like a bug. They're going to come and put down the rebellion, and they'll lose their nation. So what's Ironic is that in 70 AD, we know that Rome did exactly that. They came into Jerusalem and wiped out the whole city, destroyed and defiled the temple there on the mount in Jerusalem. You know, I've heard lots of different evangelism strategies. I've read about different ways in which to engage people with the gospel of Jesus, different tools and techniques for how to witness and share Christ with others. But I love this example here. Maybe the best strategy 
that we can use to evangelize others as given here in verse 48. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. Maybe we just need to abandon ourselves and surrender all that we are and let Jesus do what only Jesus can do, to do Jesus' things in our families, in our communities, and then everyone who sees his power and his glory and his goodness will believe in him. So the the problem of, of Christ's popularity and of this new movement seems like an unsolvable problem to the Sanhedrin in this chapter until Caiaphas, the high priest, comes to the rescue. Caiaphas was a Sadducee. The Sadducees were a sect of Judaism that did not believe in any kind of bodily resurrection. They denied the doctrine of resurrection, which is in Old Testament, New Testament scriptures. We affirm that that is a Orthodox Christian, Judeo-Christian doctrine. So he was well offended by this talk about Lazarus, wanted to squash this whole thing. The Sadducees were also aligned politically with Rome. It was Caiaphas who was tasked with ensuring that all those taxes that were rendered unto Caesar kept on coming in orderly and a complete supply to Rome. And he was high priest for 18 years. That's longer than any other high priest in the entire first century. And he didn't get to last that long by being unintelligent. Caiaphas was ruthless. He was cynical. He was jaded. Look at verse 49. Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, you know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it's better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. The Greek text actually says something more like, you don't know what you're talking about which is highly ironic, given that Caiaphas was the one who did not know what he was talking about. Yes, he was absolutely right. He was correct, more right than he realized when he said that it's better for one man to die than the whole nation die. That's right. He nailed it. He absolutely got it right when he says, if Jesus dies, the nation lives. It's his life instead of theirs. Amen, Caiaphas, right on. (laughs) But he's thinking it purely a a pragmatic, political, earthly kind of level. When he said those words, though, God was also speaking through him. He was prophesying about the Lamb of God who had come to take away the sins of the world. So Jesus, of course, knows about the Sanhedrin. He knows about their ruling and their plan to arrest him and have him killed. So he basically says, not time yet, almost, it's close, but not yet. So he goes and slips off into the wilderness with his disciples again. And meanwhile, meanwhile, the Passover preparations are underway. There's a buzz in Jerusalem. It's electric as people come up from all over Judea to purify themselves and get ready for Passover. The rumors are flying. Is he going to come or not? I hear he's up north in Ephraim somewhere. No, no, I hear he's in in Bethany again, hanging out over there. Have you seen all those soldiers at the temple? They're all armed like they're going to war or something. 
Someone said that he's gone to Egypt. I think he's, he's out of here. I think he's not really the Messiah. And all this is happening six days before the big actual Passover celebration. And that's only six days until the Lord Jesus would be lifted up on a cross as the Lamb of God who atones for the sins of the world. That's the context of John 12 when he shows up again in Bethany. You know, this is the town about two mile, less than two miles outside of Jerusalem on the eastern slopes of the Mount of Olives. And the whole village is throwing a big dinner party. They love Jesus. He's an amazing hero. He raised Lazarus after four days in the tomb. And so they're, they're giving him a, a big party. And we know from the other gospels that the disciples are there. They're in uh, a guy's home named Simon the leper, probably the former leper since Jesus healed him. And Jesus knows that word is soon going to get around to all of Judea that he's in Bethany. They're going to send authorities after him. But for now, he's celebrating and enjoying his friends. And I, I love the, the differences between Martha and Mary and Lazarus, the three siblings in this story. You know, verse 2 here says that Martha served the dinner. Martha served the dinner. And Lazarus was there reclining at the table, just hanging out and enjoying being with Jesus and the disciples. Martha's a doer. She's busy. We know this from the other gospel accounts. She loved to serve. And, and the fact that everyone else is reclining at the table probably means that this isn't just like a supper. They're not just having a meal. They're having a banquet. They're having a feast a celebration, a party. And Martha is in her element. She was probably up at the crack of dawn, firing up the oven, getting all the different dishes ready, all the food ready. She's got a big smile on her face. She lives for this kind of thing. Some of you know people like this who just love to host people in their home who love to throw a party, who love to cook course after course, who, who live for Thanksgiving, for Christmas, for those kinds of occasions. She's totally at home here, bringing out course after course of her favorite recipes and serving Jesus and all the disciples all of her best dishes. And she's doing it with a grateful, glad heart because it's an act of worship. She shows us here that service can be an act of worship, that giving of your time, your talent, your treasure on the behalf of others, if done with the right attitude, is an act of worship. Martha's not stressed out here. She's not begrudging like she was earlier at another dinner party that we read about in the other Gospels where she didn't have the right attitude. Remember that? She complained to Jesus that Mary was just sitting there while she was doing all the work. And Jesus explained that Mary had chosen the good way to sit and learn. But here in this end of Jesus' ministry, Martha has learned to use her gifts in a joyful way, to pour out herself in service in a way that not only honors the Lord, but that makes her feel like it's her purpose in life. She's learned to use these gifts and strengths to serve the Lord as she was made to serve the Lord. But Mary's different, of course. Mary, I don't know if she's more 
philosophical, maybe more creative, maybe more passionate, maybe more emotional. But Mary, at some point in this dinner party, she leaves the room. And maybe she was thinking about an earlier incident that happened in Jesus' ministry. The other gospel accounts describe that Jesus is having dinner at the house of a Pharisee. And the, the Pharisee makes no effort to have Jesus' feet cleaned as a good host would before the meal. The Pharisee makes no effort to honor Jesus, not only as a respected rabbi, but as the Messiah. He doesn't anoint Jesus' head with oil. He doesn't put any kind of ointment on him as a symbol of blessing or honor. But at this meal, a woman of, of ill repute, a scandalous woman, comes in to the dinner party and she recognizes that Jesus is the one who can transform her life and restore her heart. And she comes and she kneels at the feet of her Lord and Savior. And she begins to weep. She, she brings a vial probably to anoint Jesus' head as the Messiah, but she can't bring herself to stand and reach his head. So she just cries at his feet and tears are flowing onto Jesus' feet. And she didn't know what to do, so she took her hair down and she wipes his feet with her hair. Look at Luke 7, 38. I think it'll be on the screen. It says, standing behind him at his feet, weeping, this woman began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and then anointed them with the ointment she had brought. Maybe Mary has heard about this incident and she thinks, I want to do the same thing for Jesus. I want to show my full devotion to him as Lord, Master, and Savior. And, and, and I want to show that I'm not going to hold anything back I'm going to spare no expense in my devotion to him. And so she comes back into the dinner party with a jar of, of some of the most expensive kind of perfume that was available at this time in the world. Spikenard. It's a horrible name, nard, but it's amazing stuff, apparently. And since Jesus is reclining at the table, they would prop up on one elbow and his feet are out behind him. So she comes to where his feet are to anoint them with this whole entire jar of this expensive perfume. And she pours the whole contents. The other gospels say that she breaks the jar over Jesus' feet and she wipes his feet with her hair. What do we learn from this incredible act of devotion and love? Well, first, we know how costly her actions were to her. Judas, in the next few verses, estimates here that that much pure spikenard, about a pound of it apparently, would, would be worth 300 denarii. That's about a year's worth of wages for a, a day laborer. The, the quantity of it, the purity of it, it was pure spikenard. And the origin, it was, it was gathered from a, a specific plant that only grew around India. It had to come many, many, many thousands of miles to get to where they were. Made it incredibly expensive. Some scholars wonder, how did Mary end up with this incredibly expensive jar? Some of them think it must have been an heirloom, maybe uh, passed down throughout her family. 
And she was clearly saving it for something special, for something worthy. It was her treasured possession, and she willingly gave it all for Jesus. So what's your treasured possession? What's something that you tend to hold on to with a closed hand instead of holding it with an open hand for the Lord? What would you be willing to give? What would you be willing to lose in order to follow Jesus more nearly, in order to express your unbridled devotion to him? For some of us, it's our, our bank account. For some of us, it's our reputation, our, our, or maybe a relationship, our family even. Whatever it is, would we be freely willing to give it today, to hold it like this and say to Jesus, everything I have is completely, utterly yours. Do with it what you will. Will we make our treasure available for Jesus to use for his kingdom, for his glory, for his namesake? Jesus said earlier in the Sermon on the Mount, on the other side of the Mount of Olives, that where our treasure is, there our heart will be also. If we're going to live as Christians in this world, it, it means surrendering 100%, all that we are, of our hearts to Jesus, not holding any part of our hearts back from him, but total devotion. It means treasuring Christ above all else and savoring our relationship with our Savior as sweeter and greater and vastly superior to anything that this world has to offer. Judas Iscariot here in this text gives us an idea of where his heart is. It's not with Jesus. It's with the money bag. He sees this extravagant act of love from Mary, and he calls it a colossal waste. In verse 5, he pipes up and says, why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? And then John helps us out. He didn't say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. Having charged the money bag, he used to help himself to whatever was put in it. He was thinking, I could have a much bigger money bag to pull from. Here's Mary literally pouring out her prized possession, her greatest treasure at the feet of Jesus, and Judas only sees it in a material sense. Kent Hughes says in his commentary, I've been loving his commentary as I do this sermon series, he says, to the, to the heart that never met God, worship seems a most impractical, wasteful pursuit. Judas is a profile of hell. Wow. If we see worship as waste, as too extravagant, is not worth it, heaven will not be a happy place for us. There's two sides of this issue too, okay? I think it's tempting for a lot of us who think of ourselves as good Christians, as somewhat religious people, because we go to church and we don't do the bad things that other people do. And it's easy for us to not feel that burden to, to be moved to minister to the needs of others. 
You know what I'm saying? I'm a good person. I don't need to give to that. I don't need to, to go and volunteer there. I don't need to serve those people. I'm, I'm a good, I go to church, so I don't need to do that stuff. I think we, a lot of us feel like we've done enough by being a good Christian, so we, we cease to feel compassion for those that need it. But the opposite can be true, too. I think some of us go the other side. Many people get highly involved in caring for the least of these, but their hearts are not near to God. D.A. Carson says, if, if self-righteous piety sometimes snuffs out genuine compassion, it must also be admitted with shame that social activism, even that which meets real needs, sometimes masks a spirit that knows nothing of worship or adoration. Worship must be the fuel that drives the engine of ministry. I know that Nan Teeter does the burrow bag ministry not because she's trying to earn some kind of social ministry points, but because she loves Jesus. That's the fuel behind it. <clears throat> ministry is one of our five purposes here. You've seen the five triangles that we have in our logo. Ministry is absolutely a priority of our church. We want to love our neighbors as ourselves. That means meeting the needs of our neighbors. This is why my wife and I take our kids up to the burrow bag room once a month. I'm not bragging, but we want to teach our kids that we are called to meet the needs of others. That's important. That's valid. We have several line items in our budget that go towards meeting the needs of others. That's great. But worship has got to be the primary purpose that drives all the other purposes. It has to be the center of the other purposes of the church. If we're not a worshiping congregation, we've missed the whole point of all the other purposes of the church. We do all these great things. This church, I've been, I tell my friends, this church has done foreign missions since before it was cool. We were doing foreign missions in the 60s and 70s, 50s even. Dewey and Bobby were in Guatemala in the 50s, right? <laughs> That's amazing. Our church sends mission teams to, we're sending a team out to Dominica. When do y'all leave, Catherine? Soon, next week, we're gonna dedicate them. That's an important time. We send teams around the world. We partner with the Nashville Rescue Mission. Your tithes and offerings go to support that. Hope Clinic, Habitat for Humanity. We have a food pantry that if you call 211, they send you here because we have people who will hand out food and pray with you at Woodmont Baptist Church every Tuesday morning. But we've said it before, and I'll say it again. If, if we get worship right, all the other purposes will fall into place. You see in our diagram that worship's the center of all the other purposes. Worship is the engine that drives the other things that we do as a church. Yes, discipleship's very important. Yes, ministry, meeting needs is important. Yes, evangelism's incredibly important. And fellowship, our church is a family of faith. But all that must be driven by the engine of worship. I hope you're therefore praying for our, our search team, for Carlos Ruslan and, and the, the other six members of our search team that's tasked with finding whoever it is that God has in mind 
to lead this church in worship over the next season of Woodmont Baptist's life. It's an incredibly important position. The text here says that when Mary had emptied the contents of the jar onto Jesus' feet, the whole house was full of the fragrance of the perfume. I think about when Solomon dedicated the temple in 1 Chronicles, how the glory of God rushed in and filled the house of the Lord. That's what we're looking for here at Woodmont. The fragrance of Christ, the aroma of God's presence. You know, smell is a, a very powerful sense. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 14 says, thanks be to God who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. When I preached this text a couple years ago in September of, of 17, you may remember I grilled a couple steaks up here and I had a fan just wafting that fragrance out into the congregation. Many of you told me that you had steak for dinner that night. Some of you couldn't wait and had it for, for lunch. The aroma of Christ doesn't arrive by giving him part of ourselves. The glory of God doesn't enter a place and fill it through half-hearted worship. It only comes when we give everything to him. Mary didn't pour a little of this expensive perfume on Jesus' feet. She didn't even give a generous pour. Whoa, half the bottle. She shattered it. She gave it all, holding nothing back from him. Half-hearted worship isn't going to cut it. God desires to transform us into a new kind of humanity, the people of God himself, adopted children of Jesus, who everywhere we go spread the fragrance of the knowledge of him. So what about Lazarus? We talked about Martha, we talked about Mary. What about this guy? <laughs> Apparently, Lazarus never said anything that was worth recording, because none of the gospel writers say anything that Lazarus said. He's just kind of hanging out with Jesus, reclining at the table, and yet, Lazarus had become Jesus' star witness. He, he'd become so powerful in advancing the cause of Christianity and the gospel witness of the Messiah in Judea that we see at the end of our text here that the Sanhedrin says, we gotta kill this guy too. He's just as dangerous as Jesus. Lazarus, who doesn't even do anything or say anything. What, what is it about Lazarus that's so dangerous for the kingdom of God? It wasn't anything that Lazarus did. It's what Jesus did for Lazarus. It wasn't that Lazarus possessed some kind of special knowledge or power. It's because Jesus possessed power and raised him from the dead. And now Lazarus was a living, breathing, walking testimony to the power of Jesus Christ. Everywhere he went, he spread the fragrance of the greatness of the Savior. I know a lot of us feel like we can't do anything great for God because we don't have the, the training, 
we don't have the experience, I'm too young, whatever it may be that our excuses are. I've heard a lot of people say, I've done too much bad stuff in my past, as if raising the dead is worse than that for Jesus. <laughs> it's not about what we can do or can't do. It's about what Jesus can do in us and through us if we surrender everything that we are and get out of the way and let him be Jesus. Maybe you're here today and you relate to the story of Martha. You're a doer. You like to, to host people. You like to be busy. You like to be serving. You're at your best when you're using your gifts and talents in those ways. Great. Serve Jesus with all that you have. If you're not plugged into service here at Woodmont, come see me after the service in the, the South Lobby. I'd love to talk with you about where you can plug in and serve. Maybe you're more like Mary, and you, you just want to lay your heart down and express all your devotion to the Lord in worship. I love hearing Ron Landis when he's walking around the building fixing stuff and cleaning stuff. He just plays worship music on his phone. He's just in this moment of, it's not an hour of power for Ron, it's all day, where he's just pouring out his heart and praise to the Lord. Every time he gives our staff devotion, he plays a song and he weeps usually, because his heart is so strong in, in expressing his devotion to the Lord. We need those kinds of worshipers in this church. We need people who love to express their devotion to the Lord. We need you. Or maybe you're more like Lazarus. Maybe your life is a living, walking testament to the greatness and goodness of God. If you've never heard Eddie Chisholm's testimony, it's powerful. He's a, he's a Lazarus, a living, walking example of the salvation of Christ. I encourage you to come to Celebrate Recovery and hear it sometime. When Jesus comes into your life, he transforms it. He makes dead things alive in a whole new kind of way and makes us into the fragrance of God himself everywhere that we go, spreading the aroma of Christ in a world that reeks of death and despondency. What are you holding back from God today? Let's pray. Lord God, thank you that you love us so much that you're not willing to allow us to remain in the grave, but that you call us out, that you move the stone, and you tell us to come out into your marvelous light so that we can experience the transformation that comes through surrendering all that we are to you so that you can use us to spread the fragrance of God everywhere that we go. I thank you for this example that we have of Martha who poured out her life in service to you. For the example of Mary who held nothing back but gave her most valuable possession in order that you would be glorified, in order to honor you in the most extravagant way possible. And thank you for Lazarus who may not be special on his own but you made him special by calling him out of darkness calling him out of death after four days of being in the tomb, that you raised him to new life so that he could be a living example of what happens when we encounter you and you make us new from the inside out. God, I pray that you would 
use us here to cultivate a lifestyle of worship that we would learn to devote ourselves more fully to you. God, I know that we're all busy here. We have so many anxieties. We have fears. We have worries. We have tragic circumstances in our lives. God, I pray that you would remind us that all that stuff is just secondary compared to you. This life is short, that you are the master of it all, and that everything we go through in this world will pass away except for the things that are of you, from you, and for you. Help us to devote all that we are from our heads to our toes, all of our time, all of our talent, all of our treasure to you, our Lord and Savior, who is worth it all and so much more than we have to give you. I pray that Woodmont would be a worshiping church, that worship would fuel our acts of evangelism, our acts of fellowship, our acts of ministry, our acts of discipleship that worship would drive it all. God, we thank you for your word that teaches us these things. May we be faithful as we go from this place today as a Mary, as a Martha, as a Lazarus. We pray this in Jesus' powerful name. Amen. We're gonna stand and sing a song of surrender, have thine own way. If you've never surrendered your heart to Jesus, I invite you to come forward and, and talk to me about what that looks like now. Maybe you just wanna pray with somebody. Uh, Morgan, I ask you to come up here. Dewey, if you wouldn't mind coming up here as well. If you want to pray with someone, Dewey and Morgan will be up here at the front to pray with, uh, or I'll be up here as well. Maybe you want to join Woodmont as this family of faith, and you say, I'm ready to, to play my part and to give all that, that I have in service to the Lord and through this body of Christ. If you want to become a part of Woodmont, I'd love to talk with you about that, what we believe in, in church membership here. Whatever it is that you need to do, I pray that you will sing these words with your heart. Have thine own way, Lord. I surrender not my way, but yours. Let's stand and sing.